Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and giving life to those in the tombs. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and giving life to those in the tombs. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and giving life to those in the tombs. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Let me tell you a quick little story. I promise it won't be long. During the early days of the Communist Revolution in the 1920s, the Civil War was raging in Russia. They had assembled all these people from a small village. The commissar was there trying to tell these people, look at the czar, your bishops, your priests, they kept you foolish, they kept you stupid, they kept you oppressed. There is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is just now, and the state will provide for all of your needs. And he went on to tell them that there was no God. And then at the end he said, I defy anybody here to come up and prove that there is a God. This poor little Russian peasant raised his hand. He walked up to the podium, removed his hat very respectfully, and then in a very moving way he said, Christ is risen. And all the village people responded, indeed he is risen. And he said again, Christ is risen. Indeed he is risen. And back and forth the volley went, a traditional greeting in the Eastern Christians, Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. And saying that, the commissar realized that all of his persuasion was for nothing because the people had never abandoned their faith in Christ. That's a story to go with you about Russian Easter. Christ is risen, indeed, indeed he is risen. Christ is risen. Our speaker tonight is Assistant Professor of Religion in the History Department at the University of Illinois in Springfield. He obtained his doctorate in Semitic Languages and Literature from the Catholic University of America. He taught at California State University Chico before coming to the University of Illinois at Springfield in 2007. His areas of interest include the intellectual, social, and religious history of the late antiquity and medieval Middle East. Dr. Perdana has published a book entitled Christian and Muslim Dialogues, the Religious Uses of a Literary Form in the Early Islamic Middle East. He's a personal friend and former parishioner here at Holy Transfiguration. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Uh, Sabatino, you have my outline, all of my notes right there in your hand. <laughs> Okay. Thank you very much. Christ is risen. Uh, Father Joseph's story that he started out with is a good example of uh, the idea of the resurrection and how there is a continual assault against the idea of a new life, of eternal life. And, and we have that today in our culture, in, in a secular culture, which challenges the idea in the new atheism, especially of anything beyond this world, there is nothing. And then the tradition of materialism sees nothing beyond this world. Rather than see that as something new, we can go back actually to the period prior to Christianity and even see in the start that the idea of resurrection, even in that period, was considered ridiculous. If you go back to um, the time period of the age of the Old Testament, and we think of the early Israelites uh, and the people around them, the Assyrians, uh, one of the first things that they would do was to talk about, uh, well, what is there afterward? They agreed that there was no resurrection. Uh, there is no afterlife in the sense that we think of it. Instead, in uh, the time prior to Christ, one of the common ways of thinking about the afterlife 
was to talk about Sheol, this dwelling place, which uh, is uh, equivalent in some ways in, in the Greek tradition to Hades. Well, I'll write that on the board for everybody. Sheol was not something in the idea of, of a paradise or not some place of punishment, but rather a place of, of simply a dwelling afterward, a dwelling place of souls. And so one of the main differences in this concept of resurrection versus what we have within the Christian tradition was the idea that there is no communion with God. The afterlife is, in this understanding, is to be separate from God. What we have in the first century then, we come to the first century and you've probably heard about a couple of the Jewish groups there, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees maintained this tradition that there was no resurrection. The idea of a bodily resurrection was absurd. And so in response to this, uh, you may be familiar with one of the stories uh, of Jesus and his encounter with a Sadducee who comes up to him and asks him a question. Rabbi, there is this woman, and she married this man, and the man ended up dying, and they didn't have any children. And so uh, the brother had to marry the woman according to Jewish law, and the second brother married her and dies as well, and so on and so forth, until you get to seven brothers who all married this woman, and then they all die at the end. And then the Sadducee says, well, if there's a resurrection, then which one is she married to? And of course, Jesus says, well, of course, that's not what the resurrection is like. The, the resurrection is to be like the angels. It is to be sons of God. It is a completely new state, different from the way that you Sadducees are thinking. You're thinking still in earthly terms about what, what this means, what this resurrection means. When we think of Jesus Christ, when we think of the resurrection of Christ, when we think of the general resurrection, our own resurrection, we should think immediately to um, the tradition that we, we learn from Jesus Christ about the teachings of this. And we can see this among, as well, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees actually identified with Jesus. And if you are familiar with the Acts of the Apostles and Paul, one of the first things Paul would do whenever he got cornered by the Jews was to say, I believe in the resurrection. And immediately the Jews would separate into the two camps, Sadducees versus Pharisees, and, and then they would start arguing amongst themselves, and then he, was, he would get off, got free. So the idea of the resurrection it was a very much a dividing point in the community. So what Jesus was saying was novel. What Jesus was saying was not simply the accepted teaching of the time period. What else was important about this is the idea of not only the general resurrection, but the idea that res with resurrection comes judgment. Resurrection is always something that it corresponds with a time of judgment. There is a heaven, there is a hell, there is punishment, and there is benefit, there is communion with God. And so we have an example of that also in the New Testament, some of the, the origins of this idea of the resurrection with the teaching of Jesus about um, the old man who has the scabs and who's, who's lying at the foot of the table of the rich man. And, of course, he talks about the story of the bosom of Abraham. And this parable of the, of the bosom of Abraham gives us a little bit of an, an idea about what this resurrection and what this afterlife would be like. So it's clear from the teachings of Jesus Christ that the resurrection, that eternal life was a new message and a message of hope for the community of Christians, for this new church, and for this new community, which its fundamental claim that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead was a challenge to the culture around it. So not only was it the Sadducees, of course, that rejected the resurrection, but everyone around Israel rejected the resurrection. Among the pagans, the concept of any type of resurrection was considered to be uh, not only ridiculous, but it was considered to be disgusting. Why was it disgusting? Well, because we're bodies, and we have our souls in our bodies, and the way that all of the bad things that happen, the way we sin, we sin through our bodies. So our bodies are evil-like. So who would want to be resurrected in a body? Because the body is where you get all of your sin from. So the idea of a resurrection with a body is, uh, was absurd. And so this is what some of the first pagans said when Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ to them. When he first encounters the community in Athens, he goes up to the Areopagus and, and says, there I preach this resurrection. And they say, this is absurd for this reason. And so what we need to understand then is the idea of salvation in the flesh was very much a novel idea for, for the time period. By the, in the first century, when this message is first being proclaimed, People think it's absurd. And yet, 
Four years later, the religious leader of the Roman Empire in front of the emperor could say, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power unto ages of ages. Amen. And those words come from John Chrysostom, the patriarch of Constantinople, who was, of course, the Christian bishop and famous preacher there. And he was originally from Antioch in Syria. He's very important for giving us our message of what is the resurrection. And this. And as an important figure of piety in Constantinople, John Chrysostom gives us a good message about what Easter, what Pascha is all about. Now, the name John Chrysostom comes from the Greek word chrysostomos, which means uh, a golden mouth, and he was given that because of the eloquence of his speech. A good amount of our theology of the resurrection one can see in his, his sermons and in his writings. And even today, the Paschal Sermon of John Chrysostom is read at Pascha, at the Easter service in the Eastern churches. And so this sermon, this homily, remains so important even today. Now, what was central for John about the resurrection was the idea that the resurrection reminds us of God's vast, vast mercy. There is an eternal mercy available for us. And he gives us this idea in his talk. He says, well, if anybody's worked and labored at the first hour, then he can receive his reward. He's using, making allusions to the parable Jesus told earlier. If anybody has arrived at the sixth hour, let him have no misgivings because he shall not be deprived. If any delays until the ninth hour, let him draw near fearing nothing. And if anybody has remained even till the 11th hour, well, let him not be alarmed at his lateness, for he gives rest um, to even those who come at the 11th hour as equally as those who have come at the first hour. And so what John is saying that here is that for John, that the resurrection has broken down all of the barriers which we've created, our artificial creations in humanity. And so instead, uh, in the resurrection, we can recognize our common humanity in our life in Christ. There is no free, there is no slave. Instead, in the resurrection, we have simply life in Christ. The way that John talks about this, the resurrection, a feast is rich and poor. Even those people who give honor, it includes both those who are very temperate, those who are careless. Uh, it includes all of those who are fasting all 40 days and those who did not do as well as they'd hoped during Lent in terms of their goals. For him, again, though, it's the resurrection points to the Paschal mystery and the openness, next of all, of the Eucharist. For John, the resurrection allows us to participate in the eternal life, which is in the, the Holy Eucharist whether you fasted or not, here at the time of the resurrection, it's broken down all of those barriers, and now we have access to that eternal life in the Eucharist. For John Chrysostom, resurrection was not a time of poverty, uh, but of richness in terms of love. And re resurrection was not a time for immorality, but for forgiveness. Resurrection's not a time of fearing death, but of rejoicing in new life. And so John reminds his listeners again and again that Jesus Christ has trampled upon death as we chanted here just before in our opening prayer and that by doing this, Christ has abolished death and overthrown Satan through the cross and the resurrection. John employs two different ways of looking at the resurrection that I want to briefly talk about. First is the, the Christus Victor model. Christ is victorious through the resurrection. The idea is in the Christus Victor is that Jesus Christ, although he had died upon the cross, that he has been victorious over death and has now given new life for everyone through his actions. Because of this, this is one of the things that when I read that opening statement from uh, John Chrysostom, that's pointing to the idea of the Christus Victor. And then the second one that John often uses is the idea of the ransom theory. The ransom theory is the idea that Jesus Christ was a divine satisfaction who was paid to Satan. He's a ransom who's handed over to Satan. And in return for this, the souls of humanity, because of sin, they'd been given over to Satan. But now uh, Jesus Christ becomes a ransom, which gives us this new life. And so through this, John is emphasizing these two ways in which we can look at the resurrection. And a third way in which John is especially talking about the resurrection is the way that it can transform our life. 
the fancy term for that, expiation. The idea is, is that not only is the resurrection a type of washing away of our sins in a legalistic sense, and then that's it, but the purpose of resurrection is to transform our very lives. It's to bring us to new virtues. It's to bring us to a new life in Christ. And so it's not, in the sense, uh, something that focuses on a negative transaction, but it's something also that is meant to make us into these new human beings. And so the theme overall for John is the story of salvation. Although this particular figure, John Chrysostom, is known well in the Eastern churches, of course, he's one of only many church fathers to write about the resurrection. Uh, the term resurrection in the New Testament comes from the Greek word anastasis. Anastasis means simply to arise. Sabatino mentioned he might be in Jerusalem at the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, Sepulchre meaning burial, but another title for the name of that church is the Church of the Anastasis, the Resurrection, because not only located within that church is Golgotha, the place of death, but also the empty tomb, the, the place of resurrection. And so the idea of resurrection and this promise from Jesus Christ, what did he mean exactly when Jesus promised a resurrection? He mentions it's going to be like sons of God. He mentions to his audience when he's asked, what is the resurrection going to be like? And he says, when God says who he is, he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I'm not God of the dead, I'm God of the living. And so, and through this, Jesus was pointing out again that resurrection is something that points towards life. And so a good example of this as well is the parable of the banquet. In the story, which many of you probably know, Jesus tells the tale of the king who invites many to, to come into his banquet. He invites everyone and many people have all kinds of excuses. Oh, I, I can't make it for this reason. I can't make it for that reason. So he draws in everyone from off the streets. And out of this, this can be a model, an allegory for the resurrection in which many are called, but few are chosen. And so the resurrection and this new life is something to which uh, we are pointed again and again. The resurrection, one other way that we can talk about it, is both with the general resurrection and the resurrection of Christ. And so I'll talk briefly about the way that the resurrection of Christ is understood just outside of the Gospels now. Uh, first of all, you can look in Peter, Peter in the Acts of the Apostles, in the second chapter of Acts. Peter is fresh with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has descended upon all the apostles, and he gets up and he speaks to the community. And he points out two things about two basic doctrines about Jesus' resurrection. First, he says that uh, the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, and instead he was victorious over hell. So again, the idea of the Christus victor. This message is already present in Peter's message there. The second thing that Peter says about the resurrection is that Christ's flesh did not see corruption. It did not see corruption, and instead it was raised in a bodily form. So there in the scripture itself, we have the understanding of a bodily resurrection. Sometimes you'll often see with interpreters of commentators on the Bible, if you, get out of, if you go to a, a religious bookstore or look online and find uh, commentaries, you'll see often commentators trying to spiritualize the resurrection. Well, it's important, um, but what matters is that we have faith in following the model of Jesus Christ. And, but uh, what matters is, you know, it doesn't really matter if it bodily happened or not. And, and of course, this is exactly contradicting the, really the heart of what Peter is talking about and what, what is the central message which he is talking about. He says, I'm a witness to this event. And he points out the theme of this empty tomb as part of the evangelization in the early church. Another thing which Peter does, the very first letter, this is in 1 Peter 3.21, is he connects resurrection with baptism, with sacramental life in baptism. Uh, he points out again that baptism, what is baptism? Baptism is to die and rise with Christ. And so in the same way, when one enters into, when one initiates oneself into the Christian life, into life in Christ, one must die with Christ, but one also rises with Christ. So the resurrection is intimately connected with baptism. Um, so I've also pointed out so connections with Eucharist and connections with baptism in terms of the resurrection there. Now, if we also look at Paul and his message, I am going to get the early church fathers eventually here, but we, we have to lay the groundwork 
for this exactly. The church fathers just don't go, aha, um, this is a great doctrine and I'm going to start to expound upon it. John Chrysostom did not come up with his, his sermon simply because he had a great night and you know, was inspired. He was quoting from Paul to start off. So the scripture is the very starting point for understanding the resurrection. Another example, just like Peter talked about the sacrament of baptism being the dying and rising, and we see this every time that someone is baptized into the tradition, you have the reading from Romans chapter 6, in which Paul writes that we have been united with Jesus Christ in a death like his, and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. And if we are going to be united with his, and his was a bodily resurrection, then this is not some abstract idea, but this is something which will be a soul and body entering into eternal life. In Corinthians, Paul also mentions the same thing. Paul says, well, uh, there's this question that comes from the Corinthians. We don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. We have Paul's letter back to the Corinthians addressing all of these questions. One of the things that uh, somebody asked was, some people are dying and we don't know what's going to happen. I thought the end was coming. Is there going to be, I don't think there's really going to be a bodily resurrection. So Paul actually deals with this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, well, if there's no resurrection from the dead, well, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then everything I've been saying has been in vain. And uh, we're even found to misrepresent God if we're saying these sorts of things because we've testified that Christ rose from the dead. And if he didn't, then we are the poorest of people. We're to be pitied for the types of things that we believe. But in fact, Christ is risen from the dead. And because of this, he is the first fruits for us. And he reminds us that just as death came through a man, through Adam, now life and the resurrection of the dead has come through Jesus Christ. So just as in Adam, everyone died, in Christ, everyone shall be made alive. Here we have, by the close of the New Testament, a very clear message that the resurrection is both something that happened to Jesus Christ and will be a general resurrection for all. The earliest church father, one of the apostolic fathers outside of the New Testament, is Pope St. Clement. Clement wrote a letter to the Corinthians, probably around the years 70 to 75. As a little side note, sometimes if you go online or you see some things, they'll say he wrote it, was writing around the 90s. But um, that's been since disproven by a biblical scholar by the name of Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who has shown in some of his own research and others that clearly Clement was writing in the 70s, which makes sense because Clement is usually understood as either the first or second of the successors to Peter as Bishop of Rome. And in fact, in Clement's letter to the Corinthians, he makes references to his role as bishop in Rome as a fraternal role for the community in Corinth. What's interesting is fact is that he's the earliest church father to write that's not in the New Testament, although interestingly, in some early Bibles in the fourth century, Clement's letter to the Corinthians is actually included in there at the end of the New Testament. So some canons actually had Clement's letter in the early New Testament. Well, for Clement, through death and resurrection in Christ, grace had been offered to everyone. And he was reminding the Corinthians, again, he, he knew of the, the Paul's letter to the Corinthians, so this is in some ways a reminder to the next generation afterward. To remember them, he says, Let us consider, beloved, how the Lord continually proves to us that there shall be a future resurrection, of which he has rendered the Lord Jesus Christ as the first fruits by raising him from the dead. Now again, he's quoting 1 Corinthians 15. He's already making references to Paul there. He says, Beloved, let us contemplate the resurrection which is taking place at all times. Day and night declare the resurrection. The night sinks to sleep. The day arises. The day again departs, and the night comes on. So he's using the analogy of night and day as a proof of the resurrection. So the nature around us gives us proof. He continues, let us behold, take the fruits of the earth, how the sowing of grain takes place. The sower goes forth and casts it into the ground, and the seed being thus scattered, then the dry and naked where it fell upon the earth is gradually dissolved, and then out of this dissolution, the mighty power providence of the Lord raises it up again. From one seed may arise much fruit. So again, he's using the language of Jesus, of the parable, to teach the resurrection and the way that we can see it demonstrated in nature around us. And through these analogies, these prove the resurrection for Clement. Second of all for Clement, the resurrection 
is the birth of the church. One could talk about the birth giving of the church. If Christ was sent forth by God and the apostles were sent by Christ, and both these appointments then were made in an orderly way according to the will of God, and having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Spirit, the apostles went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. And thus preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should afterwards believe. So his connection of the church, that the resurrection is the proof which gives us our bishops, our deacons, our apostles in this line of holy hierarchy for Clement. So in summary, Clement sees the resurrection in three different ways. First of all, it's a fact proven by nature. You can see it in day and night. You can see it in the parable of the sower. Second of all, it's a promise made by Jesus Christ, fulfilled in his rising from the dead. And third, the resurrection is the birth of the church. It's the birth of this community, which we now call the Catholic Church. Another important church father, second earliest one of which we have writings, is Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was born in Syria around the year 50 AD, so around 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. He would have been a youth during the time of Paul. We think that he died sometime around 100 to 117 AD. That's a wide range, but we're not sure exactly what persecution he died at. But we do know we have a number of letters from Ignatius. And in these letters, which he wrote on his way to be martyred, they give us a good idea about who Ignatius is. And along with Polycarp, who was one of his colleagues, whom I'll talk about later, Ignatius grew up listening to the stories of John, the evangelist. And from his interactions, from Ignatius's interactions with John at the end of his life, he heard many of the stories about who Jesus was and many of these things. Ignatius was the third bishop of Antioch, according to tradition, after St. Peter and then Avodius. So sometime early in his life, he was um, the bishop. Now, Antioch in Syria was one of the most important cities of the Middle East in this time period. In fact, it's, it's the largest city in the, the Eastern Empire. It's one of the largest cities in the world in this time period. Today, it's a kind of a, a backwater town in Turkey, but in those days, it was the center of rhetoric. It was a center of one of the centers of, of the Roman world. Around this time period, so right around the start of the second century, the emperor Trajan forced all of the people to commit to uh, burning incense, worshiping the Roman gods. And Ignatius rejected this requirement. And so because of this, then, he was brought by Rome, by a contingent of Roman centurions, he was brought to Rome, and according to tradition, he was fed to the lions there. For Ignatius, resurrection means something when he's writing his letters because he knows it's coming soon. During this lengthy trip he had from Antioch across the land and then see eventually to Rome, he was you know, being accompanied, but he had time to write. One of the main things he focuses on in many of his letters, as he was going along, he would stop in various cities, and he would write letters of encouragement to the cities, to the church communities there and tell them a little bit about words of exhortation, words of encouragement from him. And so we have the, these letters. And, and in this, what's interesting, first of all, is that we find out in Ignatius, he's already teaching about the Triduum, the Holy Friday, Holy Saturday, and the resurrection of Sunday as part of the liturgical structure of the church. Uh, in his letter to the Trollians, 9-2, he says, He also rose again in three days, the Father raising him up. And after spending 40 days with the apostles, he was received up to the Father and sat down at his right hand, waiting until his enemies are placed under his feet. On the day of preparation then, at the third hour, he received the sentence from Pilate, the Father permitting that to happen. At the sixth hour, he was crucified. At the ninth hour, he gave up his spirit. And before sunset, he was buried. So there's your Friday. During the Sabbath, Saturday, he continued under the earth in the tomb in which Joseph of Arimathea had laid him. At the dawning of the Lord's day, now Sunday, he arose from the dead according to what was spoken by himself. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man also be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The day of preparation then comprises the passion. The Sabbath embraces the burial, and the Lord's day contains the resurrection. So he's already teaching uh, the flock here, 
by the end of the first century, start of the second century, the core of what is the Christian faith, which is in the resurrection. So the biblical narrative, um, which John tells, if, if you read Ignatius's letters, you can tell that he's been deeply influenced by John the Evangelist. And in here, you can see especially his idea that Christians should model Jesus's suffering and that fellowship with him in death and his resurrection from the dead will allow us to share an everlasting life. And of course, remember, as I said, this is not some theological ab abstraction for Ignatius. He mentions, I'm on my way to death and resurrection right now. So this, this is my heartfelt faith. Now, at the same time, while he does teach about the literal nature of the resurrection of Christ, that this is going to be very much a bodily thing, he also points out the idea of baptism, of sacrament in the church. So just as we saw with Peter earlier, he reminds the Trollians, be subject to the bishop as to the Lord. Also, you appear to me to live not after the manner of men, but according to Jesus Christ who died for us in order that believing in his death, you may be partakers of his resurrection by baptism. So again, there is this theme that resurrection and baptism are inextricably linked for Ignatius. Now, he also is warning these communities too. He's saying, there is this resurrection, but you're going to be challenged by pagans. You're going to be challenged not only by them, you're going to be challenged by other people who say they're Christian, but they think that there's only a spiritual baptism. He mentions that there are some people who were trying to separate Christ from the Father, separate him out as a, a separate person and more of a, a, a separate spiritual resurrection. There are people who lied about Jesus, according to him, being born of the Virgin Mary. And he even mentions heretics who were ashamed of the cross and they deny the passion because he could not have really suffered. And so there was no resurrection or only appeared as an illusion, which actually that type of argument appears later on in the Quran which is my area of specialty, but um, we're not talking about that tonight. There's a whole other discussion about that and what Ignatius is talking about and the teachings of Islam as well. So for Ignatius, the resurrection was historical fact. The resurrection was also about the sacramental truth of baptism. And it was also about protection against falsehood, protection against heresy. Whenever Ignatius was asked, well, what are your credentials? How do we know? How can we trust you? Well, he would say, well, my proofs are the cross and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And for me, that's going to happen very soon as well. Another thing that he uses, he also uses many of the texts that we find, which is called typology. The church fathers are very fond of using typology, not only in discussing the resurrection, but in discussing any matter of faith. And the idea of typology is that the way to understand the New Testament and the key which unlocks the understanding of the New Testament and its message is the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us all of the context in which we need in order to interpret the New Testament. And so for him, he emphasized that um, you can go to the Old Testament and find proofs of the resurrection. So for instance, he mentions, and we also see this, uh, Jesus mentioned this as well, that when Moses raises up the serpent, that that was a prefiguring of the cross. And so he also argues that this is also a prefiguring of the resurrection because of the life. When he raises up the serpent, everyone gets healed from all of their maladies, from the snake bit. And so he, he points to this as being a typological figure, a prefiguring of what was to come in the resurrection. One final closing point for Ignatius, he argues that, well, Jesus could not have been raised in only a spiritual way because a spiritualized resurrection wouldn't really have produced this evangelization. And instead, he says, I believe he was possessed of flesh, and I believe he is so now. In other words, Jesus is still possessed of his flesh. And so his conclusion was there is both a corporeal and a spiritual uh, resurrection, and that this can be understood sacramentally. So Ignatius is really understanding this, again, in terms of reality, in terms of sacrament, and in terms of baptism, and in terms of Eucharist another early church father. I mentioned Clement. I mentioned Ignatius of Antioch now. A third one is Polycarp. Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna is located in present-day Turkey on the coast around the um, southwestern edge of, of present-day Turkey. And along with Clement and Ignatius, Polycarp was also one of these people who was witness to the apostles and knew them. According to Polycarp, as another one of these apostolic fathers, we know that he knew Ignatius personally because Ignatius actually wrote a letter to Polycarp. 
And um, we also know that he knew John the Evangelist. He mentions that. He also mentions that he knew other people who had witnessed Jesus during his lifetime. Polycarp was born around 69 AD. He was martyred when he was 86 years old. So you're never too old to get martyred. Around 155 AD. What Polycarp brings us is a really a, an openness to, again, a connection with the apostles and a connection with Jesus Christ because of the stories and encounters he had with the people who wrote the Gospels and who knew Jesus Christ. We know about Polycarp from the letter which St. Ignatius wrote to him. Uh, we also have a letter to the Philippians by Polycarp. And we also have a martyrdom account of Polycarp, obviously not written by Polycarp. That would have taken a, re a resurrection. Uh, but a, a letter written by his church in Smyrna to another church talking about the martyrdom which took place. In Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, so, so the piece that he wrote, he confirms in there again that God had raised Christ from the dead and had loosened the bands of the grave. So for Polycarp, the resurrection of Christ was meant to be a foretaste of the kingdom, a foretaste of the promise for all Christians. And so because of this, he also hoped to be raised up like him so that he could walk in the path of Christ and love just as Christ loved. So he sees that to be resurrected is to walk in love in the same way that Christ loved. However, at the same time, although he gives this positive message, he warns the church in Philippi that anybody who denies the resurrection is a child of Satan. So he uses very strong language about the resurrection. And so for Polycarp, it's clear that this is a true historical event. It's not something that is any type of a spiritual thing for him. We'll look again at his martyrdom now. This letter, which I mentioned, was written to a church of Philomelium from his home church after his death. He was 86 years old. He mentions that in the martyrdom. Account mentions he was that old. Christians were sought out, and they were persecuted, and he was brought forth because Christians were atheists. Why were Christians atheists? They didn't believe in the pagan gods, exactly. The pagan gods didn't exist for, for Christianity. There was only one God. If there was anything in the pagan gods, they were demons. They certainly weren't any type of real gods. So for this, the Christians were atheists. And so Polycarp was brought forth. He was betrayed and then captured. And he was questioned about his Christianity. And when he was asked to forsake it, he would not deny his faith. He would not deny the resurrection. And so because of this, the proconsul ordered his death in order to be burned at the stake in the stadium. As he was being tied and the fire was being lit around him, even in the midst of this, Polycarp then prayed, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Spirit, among whom I may be accepted this day before you as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, as you, the ever-truthful God, have foreordained and revealed beforehand to me, and you have now fulfilled. And wherefore, I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you, along with everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Spirit be glory, both now and to all coming ages. Amen. This statement from the martyrdom, again, confirms this strong conviction in the resurrection among the early church fathers and the early communities. Now, there are many other assurances of the fact of the resurrection. Those are just three prominent examples among the, the early church. Another figure is Papias of Hierapolis. Papias mentioned, now Papias was very important because he actually didn't trust the gospel so much. He said, it's great if things are written down, but if you really want to know what happened, you better ask the people who are still alive themselves. He actually had more faith in listening to the words and the oral tradition of the people themselves. Because books can be copied, they can be miscopied, they can be reinterpreted by people, but if you listen to the very words of those people themselves, that's the most trustworthy thing you can have. Papias is actually the source for our tradition about Peter and how Peter was crucified upside down and his burial. Papias also is our source for knowing that the Gospel according to Mark is by John Mark which he wrote down after Peter died, John Mark tried to write down all of the things that he'd heard from Peter. And according to Papias, he said, but he wrote it not in an orderly fashion because he didn't remember all the order, but he wrote down what he could remember. So Papias actually preserves a lot of interesting oral traditions about some of the early figures and apostles. 
But Papias himself is important because he mentions as well that in the oral tradition there is this strong message of the resurrection of the righteous with Christ who would reign for a thousand years. So there's this clear touching upon the book of Revelation and the idea of a, re a resurrection to righteousness and a resurrection to judgment. So Papias does also give us that message that we have elsewhere in the New Testament. Another source besides Papias in the early church is the Didache, also called the teachings of the Twelve Apostles. Didache is the Greek word for teachings. Some people say that the Didache could be as early as around 50 AD. Some people argue it's older than the Gospels that we have around the same time and earlier than some of Paul's letters, in fact, so placing it among the earliest things we have. In some early New Testaments, the Didache was included at the end of the New Testament along with the letter of Clement. So this was highly respected in the tradition of the church. Well, the Didache there mentions and connects the resurrection with the end times. The Didache says, first, there will be a sign of an outspreading in heaven, then the sound of the trumpet, and third, the resurrection of the dead. So there is this connection uh, in the Didache of the resurrection and with the end times of this resurrection and, and this time of judgment. Another example is the writings of the letter of the apostle Barnabas, um, which is probably pseudo-Barnabas, not Barnabas himself. But um, in this particular letter, which is dated to the early 2nd century, so around the same time as Ignatius and Polycarp, he also mentions that um, there will be a resurrection and that to believe in the resurrection is eternal life. If you do not believe in the resurrection, you will be destroyed. So there's this very strong teaching in Barnabas about that. Another figure in this time period among the church fathers, the very first person to write a defense of the resurrection, solely devoted to it, was Justin Martyr. Martyr was not his last name. You can guess what happened to him. Justin was born at Flavia Neapolis around the year 100. He converted to Christianity probably around the year 130. He was a philosopher. And he spent the next 35 years of his life making apologies, in other words, making defenses of Christianity. And he died around the year 165 in Asia Minor. He wrote several dialogues. He wrote a dialogue with a Jew named Trypho in which they argued about the resurrection. He also wrote some apologies, two apologies to two emperors explaining the resurrection. But he also had another work, this defense of the resurrection. He makes three important arguments in this defense of the resurrection to say, it makes sense to me. He points out in this, I'm writing this for non-Christians. And since I know that I can't just quote the Bible to you, I'm going to have to use some other arguments. So I'm going to try to use some logical arguments. He says, first of all, first reason for the resurrection. Well, everything is made from composite elements, even all the way down to atoms. He uses the term atoms. He probably doesn't have any concept of what atoms mean in, in the way we do, but he's talking about atoms. And he says that it makes sense that if God was capable of creating atoms, then why couldn't he be capable of restoring them, putting them back together again? So if you believe in a God that's capable of creating atoms, then why can't you see one that would also be able to recreate his second argument he makes is that if creation is good and humans are made in the image of God, then the presupposition that the body is somehow evil would be incorrect because if all of creation is good and God created the body in, the image of, in God's image, then the flesh must be a good thing. And so why wouldn't God resurrect Jesus Christ or his followers based on this presupposition? His third argument about the resurrection is, if Jesus had no need of flesh, if there's no need for a resurrection, then why did he come as a man? Why did he die upon the cross? Why was there this need to heal the body, to heal? And so wasn't exactly the reason to have this resurrection, to show what it would be like? And so in this case, God did rise the dead. So if Christ was raised in both soul and body, then the resurrection must encompass both soul and body. If the resurrection for Justin Martyr, if it was only a spiritual thing, then it would have required for God to separate the body and the soul. The body would have been left in the ground and the soul would have been risen up. But that would have been really strange because God had his own son suffer and die and go into the ground and die upon the cross. And why would he do that unless there was a bodily resurrection? So Justin's arguments there, he's making this defense and saying this, this makes sense. He's saying that the body is the house for the soul. It's the soul is the house of the spirit, and God saves all of this together.
body, soul, and spirit all together. And so for Justin Martyr, he calls Jesus Christ a physician. We say in the, in the Eastern tradition, you'll have the, the tradition of physicianer of souls and bodies, the idea that, that Jesus Christ is a physician. And so Justin Martyr brings up this analogy as well here and explains that God has healed us not only in terms of our spirit, but also in our body. He's given us the prescription for our sins. And so because of this, we have the example of the resurrection to point us toward our own healing in our own resurrection, which will be to come. So at this point, I've brought you all only all, all the way up till the end of the second century. And of course, we could keep going on more and more and more. But um, my point here is it's clear by the end of the second century what the resurrection is for the faithful. It continues in the writings of Irenaeus, in the writings of Tertullian, in Clement of Alexandria, in Origen, in Cyprian, in Athanasius, in Basil of Caesarea, and many other church fathers. You continue to see them building on this doctrine of what the resurrection is in the theology, in their sermons, in all of their poetry dedicated to the resurrection. And so we see by the 6th century in the East, in the Byzantine and Syriac churches, troparia and contakia hymns for the resurrection, which are unique for each of the eight tones. For instance, some of you in the audience might recognize the troparian in the first tone. For instance, after the stone was sealed by the Jews and while the soldiers were watching their spotless body, you rose, O Savior, on the third day, bestowing life to the world. Therefore, the heavenly powers cry out to you, O giver of life. Glory to your resurrection, O Christ. Glory to your kingdom. Glory to your economy, O you who alone are the lover of mankind. And so in all of these messages, these hymns of poetry, they're all dedicated to this idea of, of resurrection. The same thing is the case in the Latin church. In the 5th century, the hymn of the Exultet was composed and was established in the Easter Vigil Liturgy. Rejoice, heavenly powers. Sing, choirs of angels. Exult all creation around God's throne. Jesus Christ, our King, is risen. Sound the trumpet of salvation. Rejoice, O earth, in shining splendor, radiant in the brightness of your King. Christ has conquered. Glory fills you. Darkness vanishes forever. Rejoice, O Mother Church. Exult in your glory. The risen Savior shines upon you. Let this place resound with joy, echoing the mighty song of all God's people. So we can see not only in the individual writings and in the Church Father's defense to the public, but also within the Church itself in its liturgy and in its spirituality, that there is no fear of death, but instead the idea that Jesus Christ has overcome death and given eternal life. We can look at the legacy of the church fathers in four different ways. The legacy of the resurrection in four stages. The first stage is the very beginning of time, when the Word was with God and the Word was God. In this time, you have the Trinity and the loving relationship of indwelling between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in this time period, we already see what's beginning to take shape, the resurrection, because at this point, you already know that Jesus Christ is going to be the new Adam. So the beginnings and unfolding of the resurrection is already taking place in this planning for Jesus Christ to undo the sin and the curse. So that we can talk about as the first stage. The second stage is the incarnation with the Virgin Mary. And the incarnation and the birth of Christ were actions that pointed to the resurrection. And we can see that when Jesus Christ at his birth, when the wise men come forth and they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Of course, the gold representing the kingship, the frankincense for the priesthood, and the myrrh pointing to his burial and eventual resurrection. So again, we have pointing to the resurrection at the incarnation. The third stage of the resurrection is the life of Jesus Christ. For instance, when Martha is upset because Lazarus has died in the gospel according to John, she tells Jesus, I wish you had been here, but I know I have hope in the resurrection. But then Jesus, uh, this is when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me you know, will have eternal life. And so by bringing Lazarus back from the grave, Jesus prefigures his own resurrection. And that's the third stage. And the fourth stage, which we see common in the church fathers, is the resurrection understood as the fulfillment of the atoning actions of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. In that sacrificial act, Jesus Christ transforms. He's an act of offering for us on our behalf. And the idea is that he's not trying to soothe a bitter father, but rather, or avert the wrath of God, but rather he is transforming us in the way of theosis. That is, 
in order that God became man so that man could become more like God. And so that, this way in which the resurrection is becoming more like God in this way. So as the inheritors of this tradition of resurrection, we can all be very thankful. And so may all heaven rejoice and all, all of earth be glad for by the death of Christ, because through Christ's death, he has trampled upon death and is the firstborn of the dead and grants to us great mercy. Christ is risen. Christos Anesti. Al-Masiuqam. All right, thank you. Just so you know, we do have on our website talks on the Didache, also a talk on St. Polycarp, also Ignatius of Antioch. So there's good opportunities to get on there and kind of go more in depth on some of these guys that uh, the doctor was limited to only a one-hour talk or just under one hour. So, I mean, he got through a lot of material, and I think this is a, quite an interesting introduction to the church fathers according to the resurrection. So, with that, we have a short time, a few minutes for question and answer. Uh, I have a couple of questions. One question. Oh, one question. Well, they're, oh, they're related. Okay. <laughs> the, the first question is, before, you know, someone dies before the resurrection, you get to heaven, presumably, uh, how do you recognize people that you knew in this life, since we know, nobody has any bodies? Secondly, the second question related to it, our bodies are supposedly uh, united with the soul. Now, what about those bodies that are, have infirmities, like they're deaf, blind, uh, crippled, whatever? The, the second question, Paul deals with the question of what are these bodies going to be like, and, and he talks about these are physical bodies, but, but they've been transformed. And so, so he does talk about this as a, in the um, tradition in the, the teachings, this question comes up about this. And, that, and I think it, it gets into this idea of theosis and, and the idea of, of becoming more like God and, and the idea that being made in the image of God, that our resurrected bodies are bodily, and yet at the same time they've been transformed. So they, they've been reconfigured into the image of God. Now, the first question, there are different types of theology. You have dogma and within the doctrine. And you have uh, theologumina, which is the uh, pious speculation. And so there are different opinions on that, but you can't go look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and find that it's exactly what this. Would Sabatino or Father want to take that question and talk about it more? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there, I think I'll leave it at this. I have no answer for you, except that there are mysteries of our faith which are mysteries of our faith. And oftentimes we seek to give a definition and an answer which we can understand according to our human nature. And we lower the things of God to the level of man. I think it's important always to remember to stand before God, stand before his mysteries. Yes, we seek to understand them, but many things are beyond our grasp. And, uh, and this may be a good example of that. Some saints may be able to try to give an answer, but... Uh, as we know, St. Thomas himself, at the end of his life, tore up his hands. He said, there's all straw. Because when we stand before the throne of God, everything is beyond our wildest imagination, beyond what we could have understood as human beings, because we begin to understand them as God understands them. God is able to see us individually, with our body, without our body, no problem. And so similarly, we will be given that gift by God to be able to see each other but also not to forget that the resurrection that we believe in is ultimately a bodily resurrection. We're meant to see each other with our eyes. We're meant to hold each other's hands. We're meant to talk. We're meant to walk. So this idea of floating around in the heavens, not for Catholics. Okay. It's a very good presentation. But you started, uh, initially you made a reference that before Christ under the Greeks, you know, there was no relationship with God. So what could you maybe, and following up to the gentleman's question over here about the body and the soul, could you give us an evolution of where the soul fits in all of this, starting from the Greeks, whether the Jewish tradition had the, any role for the soul, 
And because essentially with the resurrection is the blending of the soul, you know, that we have to save our souls in this reincarnated body. In the Greek tradition, there is this um, understanding, of course, as I mentioned, of, of Hades. And so there is the idea that the human body is, is the infusion of a, a soul and body. But the, the concept of what is a soul is quite different in, in the Greek tradition versus the Christian tradition, especially in terms of value. And again, there is this idea which is also found in, well, strongly in the Manichaean tradition, but, but also in the Greek tradition of, and this comes across especially in the, uh, the traditions of Stoicism, that the body is something bad. And so there, why would you want to have anything to do with your body? The goal, in fact, in Manichaeism and Stoicism is to overcome one's body. One's body is the very essence through which all of our sins come, through all of our passions, all of our desires. And so one's goal is, is to conquer it, but not for the purpose to um, perfect oneself, but to try to get rid of. The understanding there, I think, of, of the, the soul and the body, there's so, much, so many negative connotations with the body that there isn't this, this um, same interest in any type of infusion there, in any type of a relationship. Hello. I, as I understand it, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrections, were maintaining sort of the old, older idea that they had. I'm wondering where the Pharisees get their idea of the resurrection. There, there are debates about where the tradition of the, the idea of resurrection comes. Some biblical scholars argue that the traditions and beginning of understanding of that in Judaism comes about during the period between 7th century and 6th century B.C., it's during this time period and during the Babylonian captivity that Jews begin to get exposed to other religions like Zoroastrianism. There's this understanding, this growing understanding of angels being present in the tradition and of resurrection and that it's through reflections on the Jewish tradition and reflections with the other traditions around them that originally the, the Pharisees are come from the sages of the Second Temple period and it's the sage class that begins to argue that there is, in fact, a resurrection, um, whereas the Sadducees represent more the, the priestly class of the Second Temple period who maintains that there is no resurrection. So, so we, you, you talked about Lazarus briefly earlier and the, his resurrection, and the conversation between Jesus and Lazarus' sister is saying, where she says that she knows that he will be raised from the dead. Do we have any concept of, of what type of resurrection she was talking about? Was she referring to Sheol, or was she talking to the, the resurrection at the end of time? I mean, she clearly wasn't expecting him to be raised right then and there. But what, what was she expecting, I guess, is my question. The scripture doesn't say. That'd be a good point to go back and look at the church fathers and um, go to that particular verse in the Gospel of John and, and see what they say if they talk about whether they see this as issue referring to um, a general resurrection at the end of time, which will be for judgment and the bodily resurrection as the way Jesus understands it, or if she's talking about this in, a, in the sense of Sheol. As someone who is a follower of Jesus, I think that she's already understood his teachings about this and is thinking of it in, in terms of the general resurrection at the end of time. But here he's showing her that the general resurrection will be a bodily resurrection. And here with Lazarus, that's, that proves that. One other side note, many people think that the story of Lazarus Lazarus was one of the main witnesses, early members of the church, and so some of the information we have about Lazarus in the Gospel according to John is because John knew Lazarus and they were acquaintances and so forth. And so uh, many people argue that Lazarus is one of the eyewitnesses that gives us some of our sources about Jesus. Doctor, you mentioned something about Islam. I was moving and I didn't quite hear the whole thing. So about Islam and a form of Gnosticism and uh, on the resurrection that Christ only appeared to have risen or something like that. Could you just in 30 seconds or less give us, <laughs> sum all that up because I'd like to have you come back and speak on that, on that subject if you were available, but maybe just a few words about it. Yeah, as, as I mentioned, my, my focus of my research is uh, mostly on the medieval Arab Christianity and uh, Syriac Christianity and its uh, interrelations and interactions with Islam in the early period of, and, and rise of Islam. And um, in the Quran, in uh, Surah 4, 157, uh, 156, 157, it says, the Jews say that they have killed Christ Jesus, but they did not kill him, it only appeared so to them. 
And so the question becomes, how do we interpret the Quran when it makes this reference to the Jews say that they killed Christ Jesus? We can interpret it in one of two ways. First of all, the way that some people have tried to interpret it, and some Christians have said, is that the Quran is actually denying that the Jews were responsible for the crucifixion, and so it only appeared so to them that they were responsible for it. In fact, it was the Romans. So there's one argument is that the Quran actually is not denying the crucifixion and not denying this resurrection, because later on in, in Surah 3, the Quran actually does mention that Jesus Christ has risen up to God. How does that happen? Why does he ascend to heaven in the Quran if there isn't a, a crucifixion and a resurrection? But the traditional way which has come in Islamic commentaries is that by it only appeared so to them is that there was some form of an illusion, either in a docetistic sense that there was a, an image that looked like Jesus, but it wasn't in fact him. Or other people, there are a couple other theories, that it was Judas or that it was Simon of Cyrene. He was carrying the cross and he got stuck with it. <laughs> so those are three ways that Muslims interpret this particular passage in the Quran, but it is still open to interpretation. We don't know for sure. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.